Welcome to Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nate Sager. Before Austin Matthews, there was another U.S. star who wore number 34 for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And 20 years ago, almost to the day, his promising hockey career was derailed in an instant. A life was interrupted for a young American from Rhode Island. Brian Burrard was developing into a top-flight NHL defenseman who could score, make plays, and get rough too if that's the way you wanted it. Realizing the visions that hockey minds saw when they watched him in high school and then again in junior playing in Detroit, he was drafted first overall in 1995 and the, at the end of that season had won the Calder Trophy as Rookie of the Year. This night, the dynamic puck-moving blue liner, a breath of fresh air that many had called for during the dead, pro, dead puck era, was skating with the Leafs to close out the regular season. They had a game against the Ottawa Senators on Hockey Night in Canada. The date was March 11th, 2000. They were, they were the top two teams in what was then the Northeast Division and had met the previous season in the playoffs. They were only five points apart and in the throes of an intense rivalry in which, in which they would meet in the playoffs four consecutive seasons. It was a postseason precursor. Those that follow uh, hockey know what happened next, but for those that didn't, I'll keep it brief. A broken play in his own zone resulted in Sens forward Marion Hossa wheeling around blindly to fire at a loose puck on net from the far circle. He missed and hit Berard squarely in the right eye with his blade, permanently blinding him. Berard had just celebrated his 23rd birthday six days earlier. Today, there's no visor debate. It's become mandatory to wear one, and that started in the 2013-14 season. Except for those who have uh, been using the grandfathered exception, most prominent being Big Z Zidane Chara. And I imagine kids look at him the same way I looked at a helmetless Harold Sneps, Al Secord, or Craig McTavish. They were old wooden stakes in the ground in an onrushing tide of change. I digress. The 1999-2000 season, it was, it was commonplace to have no visor, and the debate often flared up, most notably on Coach's Corner, as to the need for one. What happened to Brian Burrard was so disturbing because it was the realization of a nightmare for players and fans. Anyone who'd ever played or watched the game at any level had seen or felt a stick come close and breathe a sigh of relief. Unfortunately for Burrard, he was not so lucky. But that's not where his story ends, not by a long shot. Amazingly, even though written off, Berard made his way back to the NHL, repaying his $6 million insurance settlement to do so, and went on to play more than half the 619 games that comprised his career with the league minimum 2400 vision until he retired after the 2007-2008 season. When all was said and done, he played for six NHL teams, including four original six clubs, and was awarded the Bill Masterton Trophy in 2004. Masterton was the only NHL player to ever die on the ice as a result of an injury, and the trophy in his honor is given each, at the end of each season at the NHL award ceremony to the player that shows perseverance, sportsmanship, and dedication to the game. Today, Brian is, a, is back in New England, where he works for Whale Rock Partners, a financial advisory firm, and on October 29th, he released his biography with Jim Lang. It's titled Relentless. My Life in Hockey and the Power of Perseverance. It covers his early life where he emerged as the rocket from Woonsocket through his NHL career, which started controversially in Ottawa, the 1998 U.S. Olympic team and subsequent scandal, steroids, the Wild Wild West KHL first season of which he was a part of, being swindled financially, mental health in his family. What is most obvious, though, is that his injury may have altered his life, but it never clouded his head or heart. He actually absolved Marion Hossa immediately and, and seems grateful for everything he has had. It's a break uh, probably from what people thought of him when he entered the league as this young punk kid who'd forced a trade out of Ottawa. He was gracious enough to join us via telephone. And before we get him, Nate, I was with you um, the day we learned of his injury. We were listening to the game on the way back to Kingston from calling a university hockey game in Waterloo. What do you remember about that night, and what was your takeaway from reading Brian's memoir? Yeah, first and foremost, I do remember we had called a university hockey playoff game uh, for CFRC 1019 back in Kingston, and we'd stopped off, I think, so, you know, make a, for a bathroom break. The 401 was virtually empty that night because there was a snowstorm, uh, the same snowstorm that would keep uh, Brian's parents from get, being able to get to him into the hospital right away. And I think I came back out to the car and you kind of looked at me and you just said something like, Burrard just got his face broken. Like you didn't, I mean, Joe Bowen was trying to, you know, it was best to describe it on the radio without 
being over the top or sensational while still communicating that this was a really serious, catastrophic injury. And at the time, the assumption was, because people were generally aware that the NHL does have a requirement to have a minimum amount of vision in each eye, that, that this was career-ending. And, uh, and against all all odds, he did come back, as we know, because we're sitting here today talk, to talk to him. Uh you know, in some ways, uh, Brian Burrard and his collaborator, friend of the pod, Jim Lang, have produced a very Generation X hockey bi- autobiography. By that, what I kind of mean is, you know, ours, is the Generation X is the generation that sort of almost as a reflex or defense mechanism is always kind of looking for the other shoe to drop. Uh, one doesn't necessarily get the sense that Brian Burrard is, you know, hung up on, you know, what ifs or what might have been or, uh, you know, the Toronto Maple Leafs trainer who was with him in the hospitals, plural, that, you know, night, March 11th uh, and 12th, 2000, says Burrard, you know, never let himself, you know, say, why me? So in keeping with that, in the spirit of that, as heavy as the subject matter is, he and Jim Lang produced a book that's, you know, very fast and digestible. The initial reaction was, well, you know, you're you're allowed to wallow a little. Like, I mean, you're only human. Uh, but but that the way they went through it actually worked on a couple levels. Since once they you know did that speed read, I started rereading over to formulate what we could ask him about, and I felt a lot of compassion for him as a sports human because his story is really illustrative of the fact that even though you can conquer the incredibly long odds to become a number one pick it's not all going to be you know easy street once you get there uh you know Burrard, you know was like came up in it at a time when someone with working class roots in a town like woonsocket rhode island where his uh father father supported the family as a mechanic and his mom you know did the books and helped and they raised a blended family of i guess six kids you know, the, you could come from that kind of background and still make it in, into competitive into competitive hockey, and that that in itself is a triumph. As you, uh, but I mean, the odd uh, even once you make it to the NHL, it's not always going to be guaranteed to end well. I think I looked it up. Uh, only eleven defensemen have ever been a number one pick since the NHL went to a true entry draft, and only one of them has actually gone on to win the Stanley Cup with that team. Uh, the great Dennis Potvin with the New York Islanders, who. Or, uh, started and ended his uh, NHL days with, I believe. Uh, so Burrard had all these what ifs in his career, like eye injury. He came back from multiple back surgeries, uh, and you really get the sense of you know how hard it is to just find that ideal situation and have it you know sustain itself. I mean, pouring over his career, he might have only really had that twice. His draft year with the Detroit Junior Red Wings in 1994-95 when he got that ideal situation for a 17 year old be a key part of a really good team where you know not everyone is going to be focused on stopping you every night because there's better good older players on the team that you can you know feed off of and that showcased him for the nhl draft and he probably had that when he got to toronto because pat quinn had been a defenseman he under i think understood how to coach a young defenseman and you know live with them live with the truck you know the mistakes and stuff but yeah so anyways i'm getting maybe getting off topic a little bit there there are so many twists of fate to burrard's hockey days and so many of them that really have to be understood in the context of what the nhl was like before the 2004-05 lockout when gary bettman basically you know had had the opportunity to remake the league in his own vision uh he was he was an american prospect who came up before there was the u.s national team development program maybe as game would have grown differently if it had those you know two years i guess in, in ann arbor or, it's actually, or plymouth <laughs> uh, it's hard to believe that you know now that an nhl team would trade a 21 year old defenseman who was two years out from winning the calder trophy like that would never happen now now with uh you know team control and entry level deals and all that uh, and likewise, well, Burrard doesn't present it as a misfortune. He, you know, he played for three flags in three flagship U.S. markets, uh, New York, uh, Chicago and Boston. But it was all while well, those teams were kind of like in down cycles, like the, to play for the you know, Chicago Blackhawks in the early 2000s meant a whole different thing than it did, say, 10 years later, when coincidentally, the player he's forever linked with in history, Marion Hossa, was helping them win st- three Stanley Cups. 
Although I always remember Marion Hose as the guy who got the Thrashers to the playoffs. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we all have those what, what might have beens, but at the end of the day, you can't let those uh, consume you. And I think that is the lesson, you know, to take out of, uh, you know, Brian, Brian Burrard's uh, life and times. It seems that he's found some haven and security in his second career. And we're grateful that he's uh, second to none in joining us as an ex-player guest on Sports Lit, Neil. Thanks a lot, Nate. And yes, coming up, Brian Burrard. All right, we're joined by Brian Burrard, who is gracious enough to talk with us today. And Brian, you're you're in are you in Providence? Is that where you are? I am I'm in Providence, Rhode Island right now. Correct. Great. Okay. Well, Thanks for joining us again, and I want to know why you chose to do the book at the time you did and how that came to fruition. Great question, and again, thanks for having me, guys. Um, You know, it was probably in the works for a few years, uh, to be honest. Uh, You know, after Ty Domi came out with his book, I thought it was really well done, obviously with with Jim Lang, and he was a pleasure to work with. Um, Ty kind of set me up with Simon and Schuster, uh, Kevin Hansen. Uh, we met in New York, and, and I don't think the time was great yet. Uh, and kind of talk about in the book a little bit it has to do with, with more about my uh, financial uh, advisor, um, you know, committing fraud and, and, and certain aspects of, of that that kind of, I guess, kind of delayed the, the process a little bit. Uh, but we thought that the timing was right. We kind of sat down, and actually, me and Jim probably we went through it pretty good. I mean, to me, it was a great experience. Uh, again, it was a lot of fun working with Jim. And one of the things that, you know, people asked was it was it tough to kind of go back and, and uh, reminisce about the injury in Toronto there. And it wasn't. It was a really, uh, it was really a pleasure to do this book. Um, I really kind of wanted to get my story out, out there, um, not necessarily just a sports or a hockey book, but um, it's got some good, good life lessons in it as well. In, in terms of the business of, of doing a sports book, I mean, we often have the authors on as opposed to the athlete. So I'm just wondering if you could explain behind the scenes how that works. Most people who will read this book will go to the bookstore, pick it up on Amazon, and probably if they are thinking about it, they'll say, okay, Brian decided he wanted to do a book, found an author, and they did it. But what's the, how does the business of that work and like the publisher finding you perhaps, giving you an advance? Like, how does that all work? Um. You know, obviously, it's my first book, so I was kind of lost at first. And, uh, you know, I reached out to Ty and said, you know, I'd like to, to write a book and get my story out there. So I, I had some help, obviously, with, with him, and, and he kind of gave me a heads up of just start writing a lot of things down, uh, a lot of stories I could remember. Um, you know, I talked to my mom, and, and she had some, some, you know, some great things as well. And, and really just start writing things down. And then, you know, obviously, um, the co-author with Jim Lang, he did some great research. And, and really, we just sat there and chatted and talked. Um, you know, we met in person a few times in Toronto, and then a lot of phone conversations. And, and kind of, he, he jarred some, you know, memories and some stories as well. And really, we just, uh, you know, we just talked a few times a week and, and, and just kind of, um, you know, probably took about eight months to, to get the book get the book um i guess written and, and wrote so um it was it was a good process i mean it, it's um obviously the business side as well so you know the i think towards the end once you finish the book that the uh the thing you know go through the publishers you know have to deal with the lawyers and then things like that because they don't want to get sued as well so um you know it's obviously it, it was a it was a experience a new experience for me and and uh it was fun doing in terms of, I talked, I talked to Jim yesterday a little bit about this, and he's been on the podcast before for some of his other books, or one of his other books. I wanted to know, uh, essentially, the marketability. I mean, this must have been different for him. It was new for you, but when you're making a book like this and you're doing promo, let's say, do you have to, are you picking certain spots? I know you played for four original six teams, but in the States, uh, did you have to pick certain spots to, to do the promo? Was it Moonsocket? Did you go to, you know, Manhattan? Chicago, Boston, that type of thing. We actually, we actually, I haven't done that things like that yet, um, and I expected, to be honest, I expected Simon Schuster to, to kind of do that, do I guess a little bit more book signings. But I guess nowadays, a lot of people just order from Amazon, and, and the bookstores are kind of, I guess you know, um, people aren't aren't out as bu- in bookstores as much as as before. So I really just kind of picked some podcasts. Obviously, um, you know, Spin Chicklets. I went on, excuse me, I went on NBC with Ronick and Anson Carter. Um, you know, I, I traveled to uh, New Jersey, went on uh, NHL Tonight uh, or NHL Live, 
in the studios there, which was was pretty cool. Um, so you know, I just kind of reached out and, and, and talked to Jason Strudwick at TSN. So just kind of reached out to some some ex players and, and uh, kind of did my own marketing and, and PR and, and really just try to get the book out there. Obviously, in, in the states, uh, hockey books are, are a lot tougher to, to sell than than up in Canada. So um, you know, I'm still. Both me and Jim are still kind of working hard, as trying to trying to get the book out there because we really thought it was well done, and, and Jim did such a great job of kind of um, you know transferring my story into the book. And Brian, I, I I always sometimes hesitate to reduce things to like one sort of maxim or one principle, but how much is your story the way and the way you've chosen to tell it about how one can adjust to a new normal in life? Yeah, I mean, that's. it seems like my whole career was kind of, uh, obviously, the injury being the worst part, but, I mean, obviously, you know, getting drafted first overall, and then I had, you know, talk about in the book, but I had the situation with Ottawa where a lot of, a lot of you know, hockey fans and you know, fans in Ottawa and Canada thought that, you know, I was a spoiled American kid that didn't want to play in, in Canada, which was totally untrue. Obviously, I played in the, uh, the OHL and the Ontario Hockey League. I did play in Detroit Junior Wings, but, you know, I, I enjoyed Canada. Toronto was my favorite city that I got to play in. I think, you know, obviously we had a, we had a really good team and a really great locker room. Um, so, and, and still today, I think a lot of people think that I'm Canadian because I played junior. So it kind of went, you know, from there, and then I got traded to the New York Islanders, and then, you know, the tough times of the Islanders and dealing with Millbury, um, <laughs> you know, and then getting to, uh, and, and I'm, I'm, you know, very friendly with Millbury and, and uh, but at that time it was you know it was, was kind of up and down um, you know and then obviously being an offensive defenseman with my career getting kind of uh, I guess labeled as I couldn't play in my own zone or or, or wasn't uh, you know as a I guess a, um, a liability defensively that kind of to be honest with Irked me a little bit, pissed me off, because um, I thought, you know, when I was playing great offensively, I was also up in the play, and, and my gap was great, as you know, most defensemen would know, and, and, I, and I thought I could play in my defensive zone. So it was just kind of, you know, the confidence in sports, I think, is, is a big thing, and, and that's what kind of my career was up and down a little bit. And then going to Toronto was kind of, uh, you know, getting traded to Toronto, um, especially that year, um, you know, closed the uh, Maple Leafs Gardens, opened up Air Canada Center, uh, you know, playing with Mats and, you know, Cujo and Steve Thomas and, and you know we, we made a, a deep run into the playoffs um, you know then obviously the eye injury and then kind of after that you know making a, a pretty good solid comeback and, and really not being the player I once was and then obviously teams kind of really didn't want to sign me to a long term deal so it was kind of like I was bouncing around it. obviously I get to play in some great cities and, and I was lucky that way but I didn't really stick around a place too long so it just seemed like every every year was a kind of a new start for me so it was a frustrating I mean at times it was a frustrating career but I still got to do I still got to do what I loved and, and uh, you know I, I wouldn't change it for the world You covered a lot of ground in your last answer there so the question I was going to ask I'll hold off on and I'll ask you um, explain to somebody who just maybe remembers you casually as okay, this this young kid's coming in. He's he's kind of like Lindros, and, and and he doesn't want to sign with Ottawa. Can you explain what the situation was, the nuts and bolts of it with the CBA, and what actually happened there to put it in perspective for people? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, you know, it was pretty simple contract to get done because I was I was the first player. Um, you know, nineteen ninety five. All of us were the first player under the rookie salary cap. So it was a very simple, uh, especially being drafted first overall, I mean, it was pretty much laid out. And then yet we had all the bonuses that obviously that we could work out, but obviously they're uh, performance bonuses. So if a player does reach those, you, you should get paid accordingly. Um, and my agent, Tom Laidlaw at the time, and Randy Sexton was a GM in Ottawa. And unfortunately, that time, Ottawa was a different organization. They were struggling. Um, you know, they were, trying, they were trying to build a new arena. Um, you know, they had, you know, Alexander Daig and Radic Bonk, Yashin was there. It just seemed like it was a very, um, I guess, divided locker room as well. So when I got there as an 18-year-old player, um, you know, for me, I wanted to play as an 18-year-old. Being drafted first overall, I thought I was ready to, to, to make that jump and play as an 18-year-old. So I think for me it was a little ego hit too because we were, you know, starting camp and, and things were going pretty well and, and I thought I could have made the roster. And it just, uh, we kind of caught wind that they were going to send me back to junior anyway. More, not because of the hockey, it was because of the business. And they really didn't feel like paying me um, that season or, or um, even a signing bonus, which would have been, uh, I think, 425000 And then I would have earned the 425000 because I think we were capped out at 850000 max for the rookie years. You, signed, you basically signed a deal uh, for $2.4 million over three years, I believe it was, or maybe a little, little bit more. Um, and so we, we just really couldn't get a deal done. And then we found that out. So my agent said, you know, let's just go back to junior. You're going to go back anywhere, you know, work on your game, get a little stronger. 
Um, and, and really just my, my agent and, and the general manager at the time, Sexton, just nothing was getting done or, or really getting along. Um, so we went back to junior and kind of asked for a trade. Um, and, and then kind of, you know, I guess the, the rest is history. But, um, I think Sexton ended up getting fired. Uh, they brought in, I believe, Goldfia, Pierre Goldfia, I believe. That's uh, who came in as general manager. Um, and and uh, I think he traded me right after Christmas. Going back to even before that, I mean, you came, you know, you, for those of, I mean, we're all, you're, we're about your age. We're, we're in our early forties. And so, you know, we remember a time, especially here when, you know, there was no U S development program. Uh, and, you know, guys like you, Madano, even Chelios to some degree came to play. I mean, I, I guess you played in Detroit, but essentially the CHL, uh, and, and didn't go the college route. And there's a, there's mention in the book about how your, your mom and I think your dad too wanted you to play in college. Could you explain how, U.S. hockey has changed and how and you know why that is why it's become you know a more feasible option now to come out of university hockey in the, or college hockey as they say in the states and play in the NHL and, and maybe the emergence of the U.S. development program definitely um, USA Hockey's done an amazing job I mean for myself those guys like you know uh, Jeremy Roenick Matthew Schneider there's a few guys maybe before me that kind of that was unheard of to go play in the, in the CHL um, for me it was a no brainer I, I actually really wanted to go my underage uh, year we went up and, and saw a game and, and uh, my, my mom my mom was like it was funny because a brawl broke out it was like a five on five it was like Todd Harvey a bunch of guys uh, Eric Carnes uh, were on that Detroit team and a pretty tough team and, and it was, I think it was against Windsor and it was a five on five my mom's like you're not ready for this no way I want you to get your college education and my dad and myself kind of looked at each other and smiling um, and, and so my dad really, my dad he left it up to me it was my mom that really wanted me to get an education and at that time I didn't graduate high school yet either so my mom the following year my mom said if you graduate high school early uh, we'll, we'll go from there and, and my goal was to play in the CHL and definitely the OHL um, honestly there was no development program but Back then, the U.S. had, you know, you'd make select 16s, you make select 17s. So, you know, I got to play against Redden, um, Aginla, Doan, um, all these guys that, you know, pretty much were ranked right up there with me. And I know those guys were going to play junior. And I told my dad, I said, if I'm going to you know, if I'm gonna make a career out of this and, and, and be a top player, um, and, and, you know, I, I thought at that time was the best way to play, you know, adapt to the NHL and play in the NHL. I wanted to play against these guys. I know those guys were, were in the dub, the WHL, but, you know, I know I wanted to play in the OHL against Chad Kilger and, and guys like that that were my draft year. Um, so for me, it was an easy decision. And then once, uh, you know, with, with the organization that CompuWare had with Detroit Trojan Wings, with, you know, I got my first general manager was Jimmy Rutherford. And my first head coach was Paul Maurice. Second season, my coach was Pete DeBoer. Um, you know, so those guys were made. You know, great coaches still coaching in the NHL today. Um, so the organization was it was a great place for me to start and, and begin. I guess my professional career. Um, as far as the USA program is done, I'm, I'm actually now involved with you know seeing some of these players with my old high school, Mount Saint Charles Academy. We started four academy teams as U14, U15, U16, and U18 teams just doing some player development but these these young kids now are so skilled and that usa hockey has done such a tremendous job of producing players that uh you know they're, they're fun to watch so it's to me i mean it's it's right there now i mean usa and canada even finland and sweden all those top top countries are producing some you know very talented and skilled players it's it's, it's great for hockey you were there then you remember when the u.s development program was created do you remember do you know what was the catalyst behind it like how it how it got funded that type of thing and maybe the re- reaction of people when it when it did get formed to what it could do to be honest with you guys i don't um i know it was you know probably maybe five or six years after i was you know i was after playing select 16 17 maybe four or five years i know like ryan whitney and a few of those guys were kind of the first guys i believe to play in playing that development camp so i really didn't know too much about it by that time i was kind of old enough and probably already playing in, in, in the in the league so i really didn't pay too much attention to it um really since i've just been retired is how i've kind of um kind of paid attention obviously with kane and then but even now i mean you get the, the you know the trick uh, the trick boys um, obviously, I played with you know with Big Walt there and, and the Olympics and stuff. So it was fun. To, it's just fun to see some of these players now come up through the U.S. Development League and, and then being stars in the NHL. And and how much uh, you mentioned the work you do, sort of uh, you know evaluating kids. Uh, how does that compare? 
how does that and the you know the counseling and advice they get compare with the way you and your parents had to uh, approach the big time hockey development system you know when you were you know a teenager in Woonsocket? Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely different. I mean uh, you know obviously I went junior early. I, I knew I was going to you know forbid my college and NCAA eligibility, so the agents were pretty much recruiting me uh, right out of high school. So we kind of had some help there early on with, with the agents and obviously now they call them advisors um, and, and you know I was lucky enough and, and blessed enough where I was you know basically you know high high draft pick and, and then played in NHL at 19 years old so um, I think it's tough I mean these, these families now it's a tough decision um, college hockey it seems now has is, is picked up a little bit for me it was just that college doesn't I mean, I think off the ice they develop you as far as, you know, in the weight room and, and obviously going to school and a routine. Um, but you're just not, for me, you're just not playing enough games. I wanted to play, you know, closer to an NHL roster, I'm NHL season. Um, you know, junior obviously played 66 games, you know, and then you have playoffs and, and stuff. So to me, it seemed like that was the way to prepare better for, for my path to the NHL. Um, but now, young, you know, the college kids like Eichel and, and these guys. I mean, they're coming, they're coming out of college and, and they're jumping right in the NHL. And it's, it's, I mean, it's, I mean, they're putting on a show right away. So it's really impressive to watch. The economics of hockey has changed drastically, um, and the book talks extensively, or you're right in the book extensively about you know growing up working class, your dad working with his hands in the garage, and how tough it was. Do you think? Given the same circumstance, you could you could have made it today. I mean, given how expensive sticks are, um, you know, personal train, uh, personal coaching, all that stuff. Um, and and what do you think about the way the game has moved in that regard for for young hockey players? It, to be honest with you, it's insane. My parents, no way. My my father, and I talk about in the book, but my dad probably made close to fifty thousand dollars a year. Um, you know, working working very hard. Um, you know, being at the shop from 6 a.m. and coming home at 7 at night, you know, raising six kids. Um, me and my brother played hockey as well. My younger brother played hockey as well. So there's no way you could afford it today. I mean, even back then, my, you know, my mom was pretty much traveling with me when we played. Um, and my dad kind of was coaching my younger brother, who was a goaltender, uh, my brother Greg. But, you know, even back then, and I, and I talk about this in the book and I give a lot of praise, you know, I was lucky enough that. Uh, Myself and Brian Boucher, obviously, you know, playing the NHL and great career, the goaltender, and now NBC Sports, um, you know, between the benches. But he was, he, we grew up in the same town, and his father, his father, uh, Mr. Boucher, was passed, and, and his mom as well. But they were amazing to me. They're like the second parents to me. Um, he had a successful construction company growing up here in Woonsocket. Um, so a lot of times, you know, my, obviously pay for the terms and stuff. But my parents, I would just go with them. Um, just to make it easier for my parents to be home with the other kids and, and Brian's siblings are all older um, so I just went went along with Mr. and Mrs. Boucher and Brian and, and uh, driving up to either Montreal or some tournaments in, in, in his big Cadillac and it's a lot of great memories and, and he did a lot for me as, as far as that and, and uh, you know I probably still probably wouldn't be able to to make it if it wasn't for them as well. I know, I know my parents did as, as much as they could possible, but, um, you know, it's tough. And, and now I have a nephew in the game. I don't have any children yet, but my uh, my younger brother, Bruce uh, Brody Berard, who's a, who's a uh, 09, I believe he is. He's 10 years old. He'll be 11 this year. Um, already a good player, big defenseman, um, you know, getting invited to all these tournaments. And my brother's probably spending, you know, I would say anywhere between ten dollars to $15,000 a year on on him at a 10-year-old. And it's, I just can't believe it. It's, it's just the game has changed, and it's almost like it's not a middle-class sport anymore. These parents are, are spending a lot of money to, to see, their, see their kids play hockey. Do you see that potentially already changing the culture of, of the NHL and who is in the NHL and kind of the way they view um, – Potentially, I wouldn't say hard work, but is, is is does that tie into kind of? I know here in Toronto, a lot of people will say, "Hey, the the guys on the team are prima donnas." You know, um, do you think that might tie into the backgrounds they come from now? I don't think so. I mean, it's just every sport does it. I mean, it's just you know, every sport from lacrosse to soccer to baseball, uh, you know, every everybody's playing you know, season-long sports now. I mean, they're just at a young age. My father didn't let me play play hockey in the, in the summer times. He's like, you're hanging the skates up, and, and I played baseball. So, you know, I, I was basically off the ice from probably April, May till September um, and playing other sports. And I, and I think, you know, people forget about that. I think as, as you know, I was lucky enough, I was a, a pretty good athlete, So, and I, and I played every sport. You know, football outside, basketball, uh, wiffle ball, everything. And I think until a certain age, you know, I think the more sports you play, um, 
I think the sport that you're going to, I guess, progress in, it's better for you. Become a better, definitely become a better athlete and, and hand-eye coordination and, and things like that. I think parents just get, you know, obviously college is so expensive now and, and you know, a lot of parents want to push their kids and maybe can play in the pros and it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's such a big business that I think, uh, I think parents, I mean, I've seen it going to these hockey games. Parents are crazy. <laughs> I mean, parents are crazy. They, they really are. I mean, uh, but, you know, it's, it's sports it's, and hockey is a great game. But, uh, you know, I don't think it has anything to do with, with uh, the, you know, how much money you grow up in or anything like that. I just think everyone's, it's just a big business now. And, and people are trying to get scholarships for their children. And, and uh, they want to try to get as much ice and, and uh, I guess, develop, development as they can. Yeah, it's certainly there's that business side of it, but a couple of uh, there were a couple of instances of the book where I was struck just by how players looked out for each other during your career. Uh, in particular, like obviously, you sort of touched on it already, but what did your friendship with Brian Boucher mean to you after you both got to the pros? And I think there was another time you talked about when you were with the Junior Red Wings and Paul Coffey went out of his way to uh, help help you. That's what's great about hockey. I mean, it's such a team sport. I mean, uh, you know, even in the guys. I mean, in the locker room, you learn, um, you learn respect. Um, and, and these older guys coming in, um, and I, I did the same. I mean, the rookies and these young players, you know, you kind of, kind of, I guess, look over them and kind of show them the way. And obviously, you talk about in the book with coffee with the with the skate blade and, and giving me a longer blade. And he was kind of a rink rat. We were, you know, I, when I went to junior. I didn't go to school, so I was at the rink, and, and we get to watch the Red Wings. We are lucky enough to play you know, practice out of Joe Lewis, so we were there early. We'd get to watch them skate, and then we'd go on and play ball hockey on the ice, and, and some of the Red Wings would kind of come on with us and play. Um, so, it was, you know, it was lucky that way, but, um, you know, coffee's still, I mean, it was still, every time I see him, we're still good friends, and it's just, well, and obviously he was a player that I looked up to his style, as, you know, along with Leach and Chelios and Koff and, and, and those guys that I looked up to as a, as a young player. So that's why I think hockey is such a great sport. I mean, literally, you kind of uh, you, you learn respect and, and uh, you know, also you demand respect at, at, at a young age. Just for those that, that have not read the book or, or will, could you explain in further detail what, what Paul did for you in junior uh, in regards to uh, helping you adjust your skate blade? Sure. So uh, Paul Coffee uh, was... Uh, he skated with us, played some ball hockey at, at Joe Lewis Arena, and uh, you know he kind of took a liking to me. Obviously, with my style, I think he, he caught a couple games at the Joe when I played him, and, and knew I was an offensive defenseman. He used to skate, and I mean, he was—I mean, I, mean I, I consider myself a pretty fast skater, and he would just kind of—he was—he <laughs> was twice as fast as I was, and, and basically, you know, I, I could. I, just put it this way, I did the red line. He was already at the far blue line pretty much when we kind of have like little races. But he just grabbed my skates one day and he basically said, come with me. Um, and we went into the Detroit locker room and uh, he grabbed his uh, head equipment guy and uh, they he put bigger blades on my skates. I wore, at that time I wore about a, a probably a nine and a quarter skate. And uh, at that time, I think it was a 280 tuck back then. And uh, he actually, basically the biggest blade I could fit on was a 288. Uh, actually the toe, the plastic toe actually hung over. So they actually kind of, uh, kind of uh, put uh, more rivets in it to, to basically kind of strengthen the plastic, so it wouldn't, you know, obviously snap on you or anything. But you wanted me to have a bigger blade on the ice for more of a glide speed, um, especially for me. I kind of took guys wide, and we kind of cut in on goalies when I we used to rush the puck or, or spin up. So he wanted me to have a little bit more glide speed, and right away I could tell the difference. And, and, and um, obviously, I wore those for the rest of my career. I still wear them today. It's tough now though because I got to buy my own skates and find a trainer that can put on two eighty eight. <laughs> Um, you, uh, er, earlier today, we talked, uh, talked about, uh, a, a portion of the book you were going to read. So I was wondering if you'd be willing to, um, to read, uh, a little bit of your book right now for us and, and our listeners. Yeah, for sure. I'll, I'll um, I kind of have one right in front of me here. It's, it's going to be in third person, which will be a little weird, but I just want to read the intro because I want to know a lot of, you know, tell a lot of uh, listeners as well. It's, it is a sports book. It's a hockey book, but it, obviously I've dealt with some things with my eye injury and then some uh, insurance fraud, financial fraud. So it's not just a sports book. Um, so I'll just read this and uh, take a couple minutes here, but uh, yeah, I'll read it again. I'll sound a little uh, weird in third person, but uh, here we go. Uh, on March 11, 2000, Brian Burrard's life changed forever. One moment he was a young hockey player, young hockey star, a former first overall pick in the NHL draft, an Olympian who had a long, bright career ahead of him. The next, the next moment he was on the ice, his eyes flashed open by a wayward stick. After Berard's terrible injury, his sight in his right eye was seriously compromised. He endured one operation after another, but it seemed certain that his playing days were over. 
bit by bit, Ferrari rebuilt himself. He learned to catch and throw again. He retaught himself how to pass and shoot the puck. And he began to see the game unfold on the ice with new clarity. With the support of his family and his own inner determination, Broad not only recovered, but made a triumphant return to the NHL. Just two years after his injury, miraculously, the worst was behind him. There were storm clouds on the horizon. However, injuries continued to plague Gerard throughout the next, uh, the rest of his career. Excuse me. He left North America for the wild world of Russian professional hockey to continue to play the game he loved. Accusations of steroid use cast a shadow over his accomplishments. And then, just as he was about to retire, Gerard learned that his longtime financial advisor had defrauded him and several other hockey players out of millions of dollars. Despite every setback, Gerard refused to give up. He nearly lost an eye, but he never lost sight of what was most important in his life. Funny, honest, and inspiring, relentless is a tribute to the resilience and perseverance of the human spirit. Thanks, thanks, Brian. Now you can now you got practice for the audio book. <laughs> exactly. Um, I do want to. I mean, I do want to ask you a little bit about. I mean, we're recording this on March 10th. Tomorrow is March 11th. It's 20 years since the injury. I don't want to dwell entirely on it um, because there's so much more in the book to talk about, but it is important uh, uh, to to ask you uh, how much of that night uh, for the book purposes was just recall memory and how much of it was was Jim prompting you to go back and revisit it or is it is it was it fresh in your mind type of thing or something you'd forgotten about how like how do when you when you had to cover that chapter and it was a very rough chapter i I won't lie to you I actually the rule of this podcast is we have to read every book and I had a heart. That was the hardest chapter I've ever had to, to deal with in any book we've ever read. So back to my question is how much of it was recall and how much of it was just this it's fresh in your mind. This is the only credit I will not give Jim for. <laughs> this is, it, it was, uh, it was fresh in my mind. Um, it always has been. Um, and a lot of people ask me and, and, same a lot of people say this was the toughest chapter and a lot of you know my friends and um said a lot of times they either cried or tears in their eye but um for me it just kind of obviously i've watched it i've watched the accident probably a thousand over a thousand times um so it's kind of i I kind of remember everything um so for me it was kind of easy i don't say easy but uh, people ask me you know was this a tough kind of to I guess to, to think about or, or reminisce about, and I mean, unfortunately, it was an accident that happened. There was nothing I could do about it. So for me to kind of talk about it, I have no issues with it, or, or I guess get upset about it. it. It happened, and that's kind of how I lived lived my life, and, and kind of was able to come back and play just a day at a time. Um, but yeah, so I, I, that night, I mean, do you want me to get in and kind of explain explain what happened and, and how it happened? Yeah, I mean, I, I, whatever you're comfortable with. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, you know, I remember basically just being in front of the net. Uh, I, I obviously knew Cujo was behind me. Um, I, I the only thing I couldn't remember is we were chilling up penalty or not. Um, and, and I know I was covering Holster in front of the net. And kind of I was off him a little bit. Um, he was in a high slot. And I just remember Matt's kind of picking off a pass that was intended. Matt's not being picked off a pass that was intended for Hosa or coming to the slot. And I think obviously Hosa was going to one-time it. was kind of just kind of pissed off at the pass and didn't get to him. And I saw an opportunity to kind of jump up in the play and kind of uh, maybe maybe make an odd man rush with with Matt. And as soon as I turned around and kind of jumped up in the play, I just, I mean, honestly, I didn't, I did not see it coming. Um, and I, so I, I, at that time, I said I did not wear a visor, um, and I wasn't able to close my eye. And the way the stick hit me and hit me pretty hard, um, it fractured um, above my right eye. It fractured obviously my orbital, it fractured my cheekbone, and the pressure it was more of a pressure cut. So the uh, obviously, I had stitches too. So from the top of my, basically my eyebrow, it basically sliced my my eyeball. Pretty much exploded, so it, it sliced me from up top, right into the top of my cheekbone. So I basically just had a big slash across, and my eye did the same thing. My eye kind of exploded and kind of was split in half. I knew I was in trouble right away because it basically, um, obviously, went completely black. Then I could kind of, as I went down, I was kind of wailing a little bit. And everyone said, you know, it hurt. It was a lot of pain. It, honestly, it wasn't. It was just I, I knew. I didn't know if I lost my eye right away, but I knew I couldn't see. Um, so I was kind of yelling to Cujo, I can't see, I can't see. Um, and then I could feel the blood just kind of pouring out because as I got up, and, and you can see in the previews, I kind of get up and you can kind of see my right hand almost disappear 
as I kind of pushed myself up because that's how much blood it was. It actually ruptured two arteries, and so it was a lot, a lot of blood. So that's what, so as, as uh, Chris Broadhurst got to me, Broadway got to me, and, and kind of uh, Jonas Hogan got to me as well. They kind of carried me off, and, and all the guys were like, no, it's just, it's a lot of blood. You're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. And as I got back into the locker room, there was a few guys that weren't playing. I think either healthy scratches or, or injured. I think it was, if I remember, excuse me, if I remember correctly, it was Gary Volk and I think big uh, Chris McAllister. And as a doctor got to me, excuse me, he, he put uh, an eye wash in my eye, and I could see their faces and his faces, and I knew uh, his face, and I knew I was in trouble. Um, and they basically said we got to get him to the hospital as soon as possible. Um, so I was still kind of in my gear. I still, um, I, I remember today. I basically was, uh, I basically had shirt off, and I, I wore a girdle back then, so I had my girdle on, and kind of just put flip flops on. And they took me in the ambulance to the hospital, and obviously I was covering my face and. And uh, we get to the first hospital in Ottawa, and uh, same thing. They kind of obviously rush me right in, and, and uh, kind of sit in like a, I would say like a dentist style chair in the emergency room. And uh, a bunch of doctors obviously knew I was on my way and came came flying in, and and the same thing. They were kind of like, oh, it's just a lot of blood. And one of the doctors took the eye wash again and kind of squirted in my eye to clear the blood out. And right away, he kind of looked at the other doctors and literally said, um, "We cannot do this here." And I was like, what are you talking, what do you mean you can't do this here? This is a hospital. He says, we need to get you to a trauma center. Um, and that's where I kind of lost it. I kind of, uh, I kind of got up right away and kind of almost like a panic attack. And I, I know I went for a barrel. I think I threw up. And I remember a nurse kind of hit me in the butt with uh, with some kind of meds or something. And, and that's really, that was it. That knocked me out. And I remember waking up uh, the next morning in a, in a hospital. Um, you know, that's when I kind of learned, you know, I was in surgery for about eight hours. They rushed me to a trauma center, an eye trauma center, where the doctors, thank God. I mean, I still have my eye today. It is obviously uh, smaller. Um, people have seen pictures um, because it, I lost a gland in, in, inside the eye uh, from the from the deep cut that produces uh, basically, if you guys go to the eye doctor and they, they test for pressure, I lost that gland. So I basically have silicone in my eye to keep it in shape so it doesn't produce uh, fluid anymore inside to, to keep it uh, that that big or that shape. So that's why it's as small as it is today. Uh, but obviously the doctors uh, sewed me back up and I lost, I lost my lens, I lost my iris, the coloring of my eye, and my retina was very, very badly damaged. And, and your vision is you had to you had to have what twenty four hundred vision to return to the NHL, correct? I I did, and you know, so I woke up in the hospital, and Brent Smith, who was one of the trainers uh, with the, with the Island uh, with the with Toronto with the Leafs, he stayed with me overnight. So when I woke up and and I said I said to him, I said I want you know I, I want to see the doctors, I want to talk to the doctors, and and uh, kind of see want to know what happened, and and they're like, oh, well, you know, your parents are on their way. Um, which the least or the organization was unbelievable. They they sent my parents a private plane uh, from around, picked them up. Uh, they were trying to get there that night. It was actually a snowstorm, so we couldn't get there for the next day. But I said, I'm 23 years old. And I said, I want to see the doctors now. Um, so the doctors came in and, and they took me into a dark room and they said, Brian, you'll most likely you're probably going to lose your eye. Um, we have to watch it for watch it for the next uh, two to four weeks. Uh, make sure no infection. But we did the best we could to save your eye, um, and we don't see you know ever seeing anything uh, ever again out of that eye. So I was, the first thing I thought is obviously um, hopefully I can keep my eye, and the second was my NHL career is done. Um, so that was tough to kind of deal with, kind of. Um, and Brent Smith was great; he was there for some support. But they took the bandages off, and, they, and I'm in a dark room, and they fought, they put a flashlight, uh, shine a flashlight in my eye, and I see the light. And the doctors all kind of was they were almost amazed, and so that gave me hope a little bit. Um, but as the days went on, there was just so much bleeding inside the eye that. The, the blood they had to wait for the blood to basically stop the eye to stop bleeding and then the blood to clot um so as the blood started clotting as the days went on i was getting less and less vision um and unfortunately blood is toxic to your retina so just my retina was sitting inside all that blood and did, did so much damage to the retina that uh honestly i was never i'm legally blind and, and pretty much uh you know at that time i did not have 2400 um, we used a contact lens to kind of get me to that level to 2,400. Um, but Dr. Stanley Chang, who did all the surgeries after to repair my retina and try to get as much uh, vision back in that eye, knew I wanted to play. And, and to be honest with you, I played with one eye. I mean, I did not wear the contact lens when I played. Um, you know, there so many lawyers at the time that said the NHL can't deny you work. Um, it's kind of interesting that Casey Martin, I don't know if you guys remember that, you guys are up my age, but the golfer that used the cart because he had the bad hip or the limp or whatever. I guess he had a big lawsuit too with with the PGA because they didn't want him to be able to use a cart. So 
So I, you know, I knew I really NHL wasn't going to stop me. So when when I was kind of determined to try to, I guess, prove myself wrong and prove everybody else wrong that I could come back and play in the league with one eye, um, that's what I wanted to do. We've all heard of twenty twenty vision, but what I mean. And I don't mean this uh, to be a, a tough question or a rude question, but what is twenty four hundred vision? I mean, it's legally blind. I mean, it's it's basically when you're sitting in that chair, it's the big, it's the big E on the eye chart. Oh. So, and I couldn't even see that. I mean, I basically the contact lens. I would just kind of. I mean, it's pretty obvious it's the big E. So I kind of just, <laughs> to be honest, I just kind of cheated. Oh yeah, I can see it. Because um, every team I went to, they kind of at the beginning they would do a test, and then afterwards, I don't think the league they knew I could play. Um, I guess really the only person I was in danger was myself uh, playing with one eye. So, um, you know, the league was, was great to, to be able to let me play. Um, and I was. I mean, I, I came back and as I – obviously I played, I think it was six or seven years with one eye. But as I got um, – as I played more, I, I started to adapt. And, and, and obviously, um, you know, I think my numbers kind of showed for it that I started putting up some good offensive numbers as I kept playing. Unfortunately, the back is what ended my career. I mean, at 32 years old, at you know, at 30, I had the two back surgeries when I was in Columbus. Fortunately, those doctors kind of screwed up, and and uh, they sh- I should have had one surgery and fixed two discs at once. Uh, they missed that, so I actually had two back surgeries. Um, and then after the back surgeries, I mean, I lost the, the skating. Obviously, was my asset. I lost my skate. You know, I lost probably a step or two. Um, so you know, it's it just uh, that that's what ended my career. And we wanted to ask too, like when you were first there in the hospital, you mentioned senators, players came to visit you, like. What did it sort of mean to you know to have Marion Hosa come to the hospital so fairly quickly to see you and be able to you know start sorting through all the all the emotion that was probably attached attached to it? That was a tough. That was, I mean, that wasn't the toughest. Steve Thomas uh, jumped back on a flight first thing early morning and flew back and visited me in Ottawa. Um, that was probably tough. We both cried and, and uh, shared that. That kind of still kind of can get me still today when we talk about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was very nice. Wade Redden, uh, Alfredson uh, brought Hosa to the hospital. I said I was friendly with Redden and, and Alfredson a little bit, so they brought him and, and uh, myself and Hosa kind of shared a cry as well. And, and I could tell it, it uh, affected him. And, and obviously, talking was it was a, it was a, a freak accident. You know, I thought you know the stick. I don't think had to be swung like that. But again, I kind of um, you know I just I didn't see it coming. I didn't expect it. Um, and it was just a, just a freak accident. I wasn't able to close my eye in time, and, and uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, unfortunately had that injury. Now, does it, is it significant to you that Hosa went went on to have like a you know a really stellar career? Oh, he's a great. I mean, he was a great player then, and, and uh, you know, he played forever. I mean, uh, that was a big horse. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was good to see him kind of get over it. I know he talked about, you know, struggled for a couple of years and, and thought about it a lot, which which I understand. Um, you know, it's, um, again, it's just, uh, there was no hard feelings and, and uh, still isn't today. Yeah, and essentially you absolved him so early on. He did go through that slump, but perhaps in a way you allowed him to to live that that dream of three cups and, and doing what he did by, by by absolving him right off the bat. I, I hope so. I mean, again, I heard you know that he was struggling, and I, and I kept telling him. I said, you know, obviously it's, it's hockey, it's sports, and, and accidents happen. And, and that's the way I had to look at it. Not only for him, him excuse me, not only for himself, but for my own kind of uh, my own, I guess, thoughts or my own brain. Uh, you know, I, I, I didn't want to look back and say, "What if?" I mean, I do today. I'm saying as if, as if I would have loved to see what type of player I could have been playing, having a long career and, and playing with two eyes, and, and uh, especially there in Toronto, when we had such a, a kind of running gun style team with Pat Quinn, and, and it was a lot of fun. And that locker room was was great. To, to it was kind of it was it was awesome. I guess to wake up and go to the rink every morning when we were there. Um, and, and a lot of times, I mean, everyone says, "Oh, how can that not be every day?" But hockey is a job as well. And sometimes when you're struggling, your confidence is. Isn't, and you're not playing great, and the fans are all over you. It's, it's, it's sometimes it's, it's a, a downer too. But I was having such a such a good time in Toronto at that time. Again, I was 23. I was single. I was living in Toronto. Uh, we were we had a we had a fun locker room. We had a good team. The city was was behind us, and and uh, I thought we could have had you know, and, and they still did without me. But I thought thought we could have had uh, you know with Caballet back there, myself. Um, we, could, we could have uh, you know could have had a long career together. Even had a couple of couple of European guys that used to uh, crush cigarettes in the laundry room. <laughs> Absolutely, the Russian mafia. Those guys were great. I mean, um, it, the, the locker room was. It was just every day was fun. I mean, the guys like, you no, know, obviously Glenn Healy, uh, Chris King, 
I mean, Ty Domi, those guys would fight nonstop and then busting each other's balls. It was just, a, it was just, a, it was a really fun time. And then Pat Quinn, I mean, he just old school hockey. I mean, obviously, you know, you look back and then games change, but we had beers in the locker room, red wine, and he didn't smoke a cigar. I mean, it was just, it was a lot of fun. I mean, and you know, and as long as we, you know, we go out at night. And, after games, if we had a day off, we were going to practice. And, and Pat knew as long as we came to the, to the rink the next day and worked hard. I mean, Pat, I talked about in the book a few times, I'd be out late. And it was like he, he knew right away. It was like the phone calls must have came in. And, and he'd walk through the team lounge, and I'd be having a coffee with the heat back on my back. And he'd, he'd kind of bust me up and say, hey, Brad, I heard you had your uh, dancing shoes on last night. At the, at the old fluid, the club in Toronto. So it was pretty, you know, it was, it was, it was, fun. It was just a fun time. And, and Pat was, 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 was a pleasure to play for. Uh, you talked about Steve Thomas. Um, can you explain how you guys became friends? I know uh, it probably started when you became, you was your uh, veteran roommate, correct? He was, correct, yeah. So you, and just, I mean, he's got to be most, the most well-liked guy in hockey as well. He's just a great guy, um, great teammate, um, tough little bastard. I mean, he just, he fight, he'd score. Um, just, just a pleasure for me, and, and especially, you know, and, and it was still when I got traded. It was my third year in the league, so you know, I'm pretty much still a young kid. Um, and, and he was great to, 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 I guess, room with on the road. That's when you know we had roommates. I guess you know today now everyone's kind of has their own room. So uh, the roommates were it, was, it made it fun. I mean, again, it's, it's just uh, it's such a great sport. Did you know in that game on March 11, 2000, after you went out, he actually scored on the power play? And did you know you had an assist in that game? I did not. That I did not know. I, I don't really remember much of that game besides the eye injury, to be honest. No, that's fair. Um, okay, moving on. Um, what's uh, what's day-to-day life uh, like for Brian Burrard right now uh, in terms of managing injuries and in terms of what you do for work? Uh, injuries are tough. I can get into that. Get into that. Uh, for work, uh, got a few things going on. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm actually involved in finance. I work for uh, Whale Rock Point Partners out of Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, it's a wealth management firm. I've been there for about six years, uh, and I got involved with them with a family friend. Um, and to be honest with you, I wish I would have met them about uh, probably about 25 years ago, because um, I obviously with the financial situation I got myself in with fraud, I wouldn't be be uh, be in that situation today. Uh, you know, Harvard hockey player uh, Brad Norman and Tyson Reed are the two partners. So really, I just give—I I don't give any financial advice on business development. So I just go out and, and uh, you know we're in the retirement business as well, so big four hundred one k plans for businesses and then individual uh, wealth. So basically, just kind of set up meetings uh, for them. Uh, great guys to work for. Great environment. Um, I'm involved with uh, Mount St. Charles hockey, which uh, that's my old high school guys like uh, you know Keith Carney, Matthew Schneider. Um, Gar Snow, myself, Brian Lawton was the, the first American. So, very, very deep hockey tradition here in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, where I was born and raised. Uh, we started a new program this year, uh, Hockey Academy, Mount St. Charles Hockey Academy. So, we started a U14, a U15, a U16, and a U18 program, um, which the kids dorm now. It's become a boarding school again. And I'm, I'm on the ice. If I'm in town and not traveling for work, I'm on the ice usually once or twice a week with those guys. Just player development, just kind of. Uh, Helping the defense, uh, helping the coaches with some power play stuff, um, some offensive face-off things like that, which I really enjoy. I've been out of the game for so long. It's the first year that I've kind of been back involved in hockey, um, and I'm, ha- I'm having a lot of fun with it, especially the younger kids. So I'd like to try to get back involved in the NHL, but hopefully an organization to, to kind of work with some player development. I just really enjoy working with the young kids, especially in that age between you know 14, 18, and then once the draft kid, kids get picked, it'd be fun to work with those kids. Um, so that, and then I um, involved with a real estate uh, project down in, in Cabo San Lucas called Diamante, a golf resort that I'm kind of traveling back and forth from there too. So keeps myself busy, keeps myself out of trouble. Um, as far as the injuries, uh, body is definitely starting to get out 43, but uh, left hip is something I probably need a new hip pretty soon. And, and then uh, obviously my back surgery is probably pretty tough, but uh, I enjoy golf in the summer. And it uh, looks like I probably have to get my neck done. I need the tourinated disc in my neck. So if I want to continue golf, i got to probably get that done as well. So I think I need to go away for a year and get a, get all the surgeries done at once so I can come back a new man. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're talking about the financial work. And what came to my mind were parallels between you and Derek Sanderson in that both of you, uh, you know, you had your careers and prematurely, all be their completely different reasons uh, why that happened. And then you got into kind of um, working in finance, not necessarily managing the money, but bringing business in. Derek Sanderson, of course, worked for State Street. And then the more 
I, I looked into it. I realized that there's the connection of Phil Kenner, uh, the, the gentleman you talked about off the top, who, uh, you know, was a fraudster, essentially, uh, and you helped bring him down. Um, he came out of State Street. Did, did Have you ever, considering the New England connection uh, with Derek Sanderson, have you ever talked with Derek about that? Because I, I know he was at, uh, Phil was at State Street and then left and created this fraudulent company that ended up uh, affecting so many players. Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately Derek, Derek was a great guy. I mean, Derek, uh, I talked to him after that and before, but I bet that's how I met uh, I met Derek Sanderson. He was kind of doing what I do now with Whale Rock, and he was with Phil Kenner at State Street. They actually came to my parents' house when I was 17 years old. That's how I was introduced to Kenner and Sanderson. Um, Derek had nothing to do um, with Phil being a, being a fraudster. Um, so kind of, and I want to make that clear because Derek was a great guy and had nothing to do with anything like that. It's when Phil left State Street. He went on to a couple other companies, and when, when he went on his own is when um, he kind of, uh, really we don't know what happened. We know that he just stole a lot of money, and, and kind of uh, when he went on his own is when he, he kind of uh, turned into a real bad person. He, and, and the worst thing about it, he was a friend. I mean, you know, he, he stayed at my house probably, my probably two times for Christmas when he was traveling. I mean, I knew him since I was 17 year old. So something went, went uh, squirrely upstairs and, and really just kind of started taking advantage of the guys. And, and it was right around 2008, 2009 too, when everything kind of crashed. So I think he was over his head and then just tried to get out of it by um, really just stealing our money. So unfortunate uh, that Derek Sanderson was, Derek Sanderson was kind of tied up with, uh, with that, with that name, Phil Kenner. And now you were talking about the, you know, the, challenges of uh you know with health and uh you make a point in, near the end of the book to just talk about how you know what after your playing days you went had therapy uh how how much did you want to make that point for you know other players who you know face and all the stress stresses they face throughout their careers absolutely i think a lot of people even with the mental health um you know my younger brother um, suffered with that as well um so my family's familiar with it. I think a lot of people are scared to talk about it. Um, and that's why, absolutely what I, you know, when I, when I did battle the blades here in Toronto, I skated for, you know, the Ottawa Mental Health uh, Hospital and, and uh, for Ottawa and, and uh, do it for Darren, for, um, which was a tough situation for Luke Richardson and Steph Richardson's daughter. But I really wanted to get that word out there. And, and you know, when, when my career was done, I did deal with some anger issues. I was kind of angry with, you know, obviously my injury and what kind of, uh, obviously then with the finances. So, I, you know, a therapist out of New York helped me a lot to deal with, with the kind of my anger. And, and, uh, and it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not shy to talk about it. And I think you see a lot of athletes not coming up, but what's the swimmer there that's got some great commercials about his therapist helping out a lot too. Um, so it's, it's, it's good to talk about. And I think the more we talk about it, the more we can, we can help people and save people's lives. I, uh, I just wanted to also mention, um, uh, as we were winding down here, I, um, we made a small donation uh, to uh, the Do It For Darren Foundation on your behalf today for joining us. Um, but no, no problem. Um, and that was, of course, the uh, when you did Battle of the Blades, that was the charity you initial or you you chose um, to to for for the windfall. Um, Nate, did you have a question? Okay. Well, I actually uh, just switching gears. Uh, I, one of the most enjoyable chapters in the book for me was when you went to Russia. And, you know, we obviously cover a lot of books here. We've read a lot of books. And I've, I, I look back on Dave King, Coach Dave King did King of Russia. And now his version of Russia is a little more tame, but definitely it kind of explains the wild, wild west. Jamie McLennan also played in the KHL, and that was the first year of the KHL both of you guys played there. You played for different teams. His account in his book, uh, Best Seat in the House, is uh, very eye-opening. Uh, did, was there was there anything that was left out of that chapter? Because I got the feeling that that could have gone on. Oh, there's a lot of things left out. Uh, one thing I argue with, not argue, but Simon Schuster was right. We wanted to do a book that... Uh, you know, my, my mom would be proud of and, and uh, <laughs> my nieces and nephews could read and the kids obviously it's an inspiring book so that's what we wanted to but um, maybe later on once once I'm a little older we'll, we'll maybe maybe do a rated R version or something of uh, maybe even a podcast or something and tell some great stories I mean it's just I was a single guy too so I, I'm, I mean I'm still single today but um, <laughs> it, it was I mean it was just uh, a lot of fun um, and I you know I lived with, with a couple of North Americans as well so um 
and, and our guy, you know, the owner of that team in BTs, I, I believe it was, his name was Nikolai. I believe he's in jail today, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, um, you know, he, he treated us very well, and, and the ladies, uh, the ladies did as well. I guess we could put it that way. <laughs> you uh, you left out his last name. Was that on purpose, or did you actually ever know the owner's last name? Uh, I knew his name, but I left. That. I'll leave that out on, on purpose, that's for sure. But he, he, he tre- I mean, I, I can't say anything about him because he treated us very, very well. He loved boxing and he loved hockey. Um, but he was—he was definitely a mob boss. And, and uh, um, obviously, I grew up here in Rhode Island too, so I'm familiar with some mob bosses, the Italian side. But it's—you um, know—it it was just—it was a lot of uh, just a lot of fun. It's hockey and fun. Let's just put it that way. Um, and he actually, uh, just t- going back to Phil Kenner, he actually kind of got a gut feeling about Phil, right? He did, and, and thank God he would have stole uh, he would have stole more money for myself than uh, Chris Simon because Chris Simon was a client as well, um, and he would not. We were due for a paycheck, uh, basically not even a paycheck. We were due for a bag of uh, bag of cash, and he knew because he owned the hotel. He knew Phil was staying there, kind of almost. Phil kind of got a wind of it too, and Phil was kind of hiding out. And then thank God, just took off. And as soon as Phil took off, he knew he was gone. Uh, he paid both me and Chris, so he, he kind of had an idea. Um, you know, I wish I kind of at that time had a little bit of an idea too. Um, obviously, I was already approached by the feds before I, I left New York to, to fly over there, so I kind of knew something was up. Excuse me, that's what kind of to get into that Russian story. That's what kind of kind of. Uh, I guess kind of a light bulb went off in my head that I kind of could have uh, made a mistake and uh, lost a lot of money to Phil um, when the feds approached me before, basically before that season in KHL. So I went through a lot of emails and uh, started just talking to other, other, you know, other of his clients, and especially with Chris. And then I started started talking to a, uh, an ex police officer, John Kaiser, out in New York. Um, and none, none of the stories started matching up, so I knew we were we were in big trouble, and and uh, I knew the nest egg that uh, you know. And I guess I can blame. I, I did spend, you know, I, I did have fun, and I did spend a lot of money as well. But you know, I, I thought I built some investments where, especially in real estate, would produce cash flow, so I would have a little bit of a nest egg uh, when I retired, and gave me some time to kind of figure out what I wanted to do. And then also at the same time, my real estate develop real estate uh, investments. I thought would kind of pay off, and and, and I you know be sit, sitting comfortably. Where where does that all stand now in the book? You you mentioned you went to see Phil and Tommy Constantine in jail in the holding cell is that all settled now in the sense of uh or where are you well it's funny that uh, you bring that up i'm actually uh heading to new york on uh, st patty's day uh to have a few guinnesses but also uh march 18th uh is finally after six he's been in jail for six years um and so i'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll probably do something time to choose to maybe the paperback or something i hope but he gets sentenced uh march 18th finally um, and, and, the, and the government has reached out to me, and, and uh, they want me to kind of go in front of the court and, and uh, I guess, kind of explain my hardship and what happened. Um, so I think a lot of victims, or well, hopefully a few victims, will do this. Uh, so hopefully we'll add some more years on uh, Tommy and uh, Phil Kenner's uh, sentence. I have one one last question tying to Russia. Could you just explain, tell tell our listeners the story about uh, your bodyguard leaving the Glock on the table and what he told you? <laughs> yeah. So he, uh, we stayed at the hotel for a while, uh, myself and Chris, um, and then we just kind of get tired of the hotel. So they basically found us a nice house, uh, rented us a house, um, kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, Chekhov was kind of a small town, but it's, you know there, there wasn't much around. It was basically a few other houses and, and wild dogs we could hear pretty much every night. But the first night we move in, and we're kind of pretty pumped that the house actually had an indoor pool, heated indoor pool. Uh, there was like an old log cabin with a big sauna, but we get a knock on the door pretty late at night. Me and Chris are kind of just watching TV. Um, and um, he, he basically brought in a Glock. He brought in a 9mm uh, with rubber tip bullets. And, uh, I mean... Uh, a ton of ammunition too and a bunch of clips and he basically said uh, late at night if you guys hear any knocks on the doors or anything um, one of you guys start shooting and one of you guys call us as quick as you can it's <laughs> like what where the hell am I <laughs> shoot <laughs> first and, and, and then call me yeah, exactly. Chris, Chris, my bedroom was up on the second floor. Chris is on the first, and so he, he grabbed the gun. And obviously, um, you know, growing up in Wawa, he's familiar hunting. So I was kind of I felt pretty safe with Chris <laughs> in the house anyway. Big, big chief. But uh, yeah, he was. Uh, so he grabbed the gun, and I was like, Jesus! I said, right, I'll, I'll grab the, uh, the cell phone and uh, I'll call because our bodyguard. I mean, 
basically we were provided with, with bodyguards and drivers as well. We did have a car that we drive back and forth from the rink, but if we didn't want to go anywhere, like into Moscow and stuff, that, uh, that the owner provided us with. They were young kids, too, but they spoke pretty good English and, and pretty scary. I mean, uh, they all carried the guns they, they didn't really carry. They carried more knives, and, and most of the kids were cut up pretty good. I don't know if they, they kind of uh, would get, you know, get, pretty shit-faced or drunk and, and kind of, I don't know if I could swear on the podcast, yeah, yeah. sorry, but I think they used to, they, they, they would, uh, I don't know if they practiced knife fighting or something, because all of them were kind of cut up on their arms. Um, you could see the, the scars and the, the, from blades, so I think a lot of them would kind of, you know, get drunk and kind of fool around and, and, and fight with the fight with the knives, or it was just from, you know, getting in some knife fights, but that yeah, was pretty, it was definitely, it was, it was again, Wild Wild West, and, and he had an unbelievable compound, I talk about, he probably had uh, this compound that was all gated, and, you know, he had exotic fur, uh, furs, and, and uh, these big exotic dogs as well, these, these dogs must have been over 200-some pounds, he's breeding those, he had, a, he had a, uh, a wild wolf on property that he probably caged in with about an acre, uh, the guy had some some amazing, uh, some some amazing toys, and uh, he also had a big Russian sauna on the property too. So it was it was interesting, that's for sure. It was fun. This was the owner of the team. Um, okay, Brian. Uh, first of all, I just want to thank you for giving us so much of your time today. Um, and um, you know, of course, as I mentioned, me and Nate are both around your age, and we remember we remember when uh, Felix Potvin was traded for a Russian defenseman. That was the joke. I think it, it, there was a Mike Smith joke that. He wanted a Russian defenseman, and it was an American named Brian Berard that could fly on the ice. So, um, so yes, thanks again, and all the best. And uh, uh, we enjoyed the book, and thank you for, for joining us today on Sports Lit. Well, I appreciate you guys reading it, and I appreciate you guys having me on. It was, it was fun. So thank you guys very much. Great. Thanks. Thank you.